Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. This is an episode of What Just Happened, our news review series, which goes into depth on one recent story impacting the sports business. Today, it's all about the FA following the publication of its strategic plan covering the next four years to 2024. If you work in sport, it's worth 10 minutes of your time just to read through and is available online. We'll put links in the show notes. The FA is the governing body for football in England, with a remit that goes from England teams, World Cups and Euros, Wembley Stadium, down to the grassroots, coaching, boys and girls football and child safeguarding, among many other things besides. So we invited two people to come on and dissect the strategy document for us. First up, you'll hear Alex Horn, the former CEO and General Secretary of the FA. And then following Alex, we have Matt Rogan, one of the co-founders of Two Circles, who now consults to sports governing bodies on strategy and leadership. Before that, though, here's a segment that helps remind us just how broad and deep the influence of the FA is at every level of football and the sheer scale of the media and public interest that it generates. This is the moment. This is the moment for England. This could be a winning moment in a penalty shootout at a World Cup. We've never witnessed this before. Eric Dyer has the responsibility. It's Tottenham against Arsenal. Dyer against Ospina. He scores! England have won the penalty shootout for the first time at a World Cup. They're through to the quarterfinals. Off they go to celebrate. And finally, 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 this jinx is broken. Colombia are out. England are through. They've done it. All of that work that they put into penalty shootouts, whether it had any bearing or not, well, who knows? The fact is, England have won a penalty shootout at a World Cup. Glory, glory be. Football has never been more unified in its message that diversity matters. Remarkable, then, that even at this moment, the man at the very top of the FA chose to use language that is both outdated and offensive. If I look at what happens to high-profile female footballers, high-profile coloured footballers, and the abuse they take on social media... He apologised when prompted, but then went on to describe being gay as a choice before turning to women's football. I talked to a female coach. She said, what's the issue with goalkeepers in the women's game? And she said, young girls, when they take up the game, six, seven, eight, just don't like having the ball kicked out them hard. It's time for change. All this just weeks after the FA itself launched a well-received code promoting diversity within the game's leadership. But Clark wasn't finished. If you look at top-level football, the Afro-Caribbean community is overrepresented versus the South Asian community. If you go to the IT department, to the FA, there's a lot more South Asians than there are Afro-Caribbeans. They have different career interests. This is how the practice is going to work. Yes, you're going to work in pairs, you're going to play a diagonal, going to get played across, and you react to that and you're going to work in your pairs. So this guy's going to press the ball and you're going to stop those guys from trying to get past you. So there's your 1v1. Bristol City are letting United have time on the ball here. Zellan, the pass through to Golton now. Golton will take a shot, Golton! Brilliant goal for United, Leah Golton took a shot from distance. 
And into the back of the net it went, a strong strike. Hello and welcome to the BT Sports Studios in East London. It's been a fantastic weekend of Emirates FA Cup third round action. We saw 85 goals. We said goodbye to five Premier League clubs. And Chorley of the sixth tier progressed to the fourth round for the very first time in their history. In just a few moments' time, we'll know who plays who in the fourth round. We'll also be bringing you the draw for the fifth round to help fixture planning in a very congested season. Sport can be a political opportunity. It's not a weapon. And from my point of view, the idea of us having to raise £500 million... It's a pittance in the game of football. A pittance. It's a pittance in government level. And the FA field to fund the grassroots programme, they have to sell a national asset, a national stadium, is quite simply ridiculous. So I completely agree with everything that you put into that statement before the question finally came. This is a, <laughs> this is a nonsense. It's a nonsense. And this is not me being emotional about Wembley, non-emotional about Wembley. Forget Wembley, the fact that we have to... What is it next? St George's Park has to go because we need to build another 504G pitches. And then what happens after that? This isn't long-term thinking. I wouldn't want to be Martin and the team sat behind me having to make this decision to be the people who are responsible of selling Wembley Stadium as a national asset to an international investor. I wouldn't want to be them. I actually feel for them if that's what they feel they have to do to create this funding. It's absolutely ridiculous. You know, when you looked at it, what was your first response, really? What, what did you think? Um, and what was your sort of just general sense before we get into any detail? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's, it's sensible. It's familiar, probably, I would say. I, having, having worked there for 11 years, I recognise everything in there. I'm pleased for them that they've got something out there in, in such a difficult time vis-a-vis -vis COVID. I've seen these strategies before and, and, I inherited a couple and, and wrote a couple. I, th I think it's it's pretty tangible, which is good because it'll enable the exec to engage with it. One of the tricks with these things is to make them, you know, engageable for the staff. Otherwise, they they can't deliver them. I think there's there's quite a lot that's tangible in there that you can measure and deliver against. Let's talk about the context first of all. COVID is is obviously a significant one. Um, what else is out there in the sort of environment that they would be very conscious of when they're sitting down to write this thing? Well, I mean, there's the, the COVID and the overhang on the, the immediate 12, 18 months is, is the obvious thing. One thing I thought it was very silent on was the impact of the, of the entire game. The FA is, a, is an association of clubs. You know, they're, they're the members, they're the shareholders. Uh, it's a trade association originally by definition. And and there's virtually nothing in here vis-a-vis -vis how clubs will cope with and recover from this. And obviously there's there's not a lot in here vis-a-vis -vis impacts for the for the coming year. So the, the big the big obvious one would be the Euros hosting the Euros, whether it happens, whether it happens with crowds, et cetera, et cetera. Now obviously you wouldn't expect them to you know, to write too much of that stuff down, but there must be an underlying assumption in the financials, et cetera, that that, that happens. In terms of context, I think the other interesting position the FA find themselves in is they don't have a chairman or woman, chairperson in place, obviously with Greg leaving uh, uh, towards the end of last year. Um, and that's, you know, again, I think it's, I think it's good that the exec have got something out that they can, they can, um, they can work too, but I, I I do feel that the the chairman and the board might want to have a look at this as as the new chairman chairperson starts. 
What is the job of chairman? <laughs> it, um, I I think that the the top of this organisation uh, requires a, a really supportive senior management team and board. And I think the, the way I always envisaged it is that the, the, the board, if you like, are where the shareholders meet the FA and the, the senior management are, are, are the ones who sit above all the, the exec. And there's a really, really key interchange between the chief exec at the top of that tree and the chairman who has to sit between the exec and, and the board and kind of manage both both aspects. And and But it's an interchangeable role for me anyway, between the chairman and chief exec around internal and external responsibilities, because they both have a role in representing the organization. Um, the, the weighting should be, you know, perhaps 80-20. Mark should be running the, the organization with support from the chairman on, on specific issues where he, you know, he takes a real interest. The chairman should be... This is Mark Willingham, CEO. Yeah. Mark Bollingham, excuse me, uh, Mark Bollingham, the chief exec, uh, and then and then the the, the chair should be you know, eighty percent looking out. They should be managing the, the stakeholder relationships, whether that's the clubs, the national game, the county, the county game, uh, FIFA, UEFA, the government, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, what happens if the chair isn't there? What's the risk for the organisation? What could go? wrong what would we expect if the if there was no chair what would you expect the, how would we know the difference it's a good question I'm not quite sure I don't, I don't expect there will be no chair for long no nor do i but i'm just i'm just trying to work out what the what just defining the role actually a bit okay um i mean i lived through two or three periods of of no chairman and no chief executive and I was interim chief exec a couple of times and I live with a couple of interim chairmen. And I, and I think if I'm right, Peter McCormack is interim, interim chair. So, so for, for, for three to six months, they'll be, they'll be fine. There's, there's a, there's a plan and a budget they can crack on. Um, I don't suppose it'll go on much longer than that. I haven't heard anything recently, Rich, in terms of what they're, where they're up to. Is it a long-term short-term thing? Is the chair got an eye on, the sort of three to five years or whereas the chief exec is, you know, not firefighting, but the, the one thing we can, can say about the FA is that it's enormously complex and deep and broad and, you know, everyone has a view on it. So you can sort of sense that the day to day is, is pretty, you know, there, there ain't much time to be sitting and, and blue sky thinking. Is that, is that the difference or is that a difference? I think it's a difference. I think I would, I mean, and Mark's got a seemingly from the outside. The setup is that you you need quite a few people who can represent the organisation. Um, so so in his case, whether it's Gareth obviously or or Sue Campbell on the on the the, the women's game, um, you, it's important to have strong exec who can and get out there and, and help support uh, representing the organisation. Uh, the chairman and chief exec should be doing that as well. Um, I think. Uh, yeah, it's probably more topics than than long, you know, short term, long term for me. I would expect to have the chair to have an eye on on governance and 
you know, agendas that the agendas that will be written about it'd be the, the makeup of the council and those sorts of things. That that's not a job for the exec to spend too long on. That 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 balance of how the council works and how stakeholders' thoughts are heard around the around the debating table for the, for the longer term will be more of the job of the chair. It's probably more split of responsibilities than short term, long term per se. I thought that there was. There's a statement in the middle of it, and I'll read it out. It says, football is a game for all where anyone can change the world. That might seem a bold claim, but we know it's true. Just look at how football steps up when times are tough. It provides education, empowerment, escapism, enjoyment, promoting health and well-being and the power of teamwork. And with our new strategy, 2020 to 2024, we have a plan for all, positively impacting every community across the country. Everyone can win if we build on the progress of the previous four seasons. Is there just too much going on, do you think? The FA for all, is there another way of framing what the FA does? Because that is just, you know, I'm not saying they're setting themselves up to fail, but you could be on the news every single night with a different issue based on all of the various things that you might want to put right and use football to put right, which I, I, is a perfectly laudable aim and I'm, I'm for it to an extent, but I'm just wondering how that plays when you're looking at a strategic plan. I don't like it I and actually I was quite disappointed by the video the 90 seconds to change the world and that opening statement underneath it I think the strategy is quite strong because it doesn't then really get dragged into that highfalutin you know we, we can we can save the world purpose because that you know that frankly isn't a purpose and I, and I don't think that's the role of the FA or anyone in the FA it, it may be that footballers or clubs who have find themselves with a significant you know influence and relationship with followers and fans of the game find themselves in that you know position you know they, they should be role models and they have the ability to to set and change an agenda take market Marcus Rashford for example um, but that isn't that isn't why Marcus plays football and that isn't why the FA was set up for me so I I it was in that Crozier had it in before I joined. It didn't mean a lot to me or anyone in the organisation, and and it's hard to deliver against. So, as I say, it I, it doesn't it doesn't add a lot to the to the opening for me, but the rest of it doesn't really reflect it anyway. It's not like there's an agenda for you know solving child food poverty or anything in the in the in the strat plan. The alternative route. Another another way forward is, you know, rugby. Calling yourselves rugby England rugby, for example, is a different sort of brand aspiration, I guess, or brand promise. I feel that there was a a, def, a decision point for the FA when I left in in 2015. Um, there was there was very clearly a a broad organisation that's responsible for the grassroots game right the way through to England. Um, and Greg and I were working on Greg Clark. Excuse me. At the time, Greg Dyke. <laughs> Lots of Gregs have been chair of this organisation. Greg, Greg Dyke and I were working on success for the England team as a as a key tenet of the organisation. And I suppose my hypothesis as I left was exactly as you described that there's, you know, in England is important to the nation, is empowering for a lot of these strategic objectives, and therefore you could be a lot braver and have England at the front at the front of the brand. Um, and yeah, I, I did admire what England Rugby did. So RFU 
made a very clear distinction between England rugby and actually that branding, that ethos, that 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 can be seen written all the way through into their 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 grassroots coaching delivery and that sort of thing. And it and it's quite distinct from the slightly stuffy rules bit of the RFU. And that, for me, that would be one way the FA could definitely go. Not not a you know a, a division of you know the organisation or anything, but just a, re- a rebranding and a repurpose. I think a lot of this would fit under a really strong England brand. Um, and so, an, an England football brand is could be really engaging and and lift it away from the, the f- for all is just a little bit amorphous to me. It doesn't doesn't tell me what the, F- the organisation is trying to do. It's just it's there for for everybody. It just means that everybody gets to have a kick at it if you're not careful. <laughs> Um, so the main parts of it, I mean, the, the ones, the bits that stood out were, there was some really nice messaging around women's football, every girl, you know, getting the opportunity to play football, which I thought was a really strong and positive message. Um, there was some nice stuff there about volunteers and in terms of, you know, managing that massive population of, of volunteers that basically run football through through the country um there was pitches what do you think about pitches what what's the the because it's obviously important and, and bit of it but there's a part of me that thinks that it's easy to go the sort of um it's buildings and and things are much easier than for example coaches and human beings it's i mean i'm in, i used to teach and one of the things that we always used to talk about was when the money came in, they always used to build a science block or, or buy some computers because you could then point to that and say, look, that's progress. There is a building taking place. Whereas actually the training of teachers is a harder, longer term thing. And, you know, to quote yes, minister that you, you won't get the credit anyway, because you'll be gone by the time they'll be qualified. And there is an element here that there, there wasn't much about coaching and about humans in there. And there was a tangible about pitches, which again, you can't argue that we don't want we don't want less pitches. We want more pitches, and it's great that they're they're aiming for that. But that felt like a miss. Uh, yeah, I mean, look. Firstly, women's football, hundred percent agree. I think it's 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 vitally important, and again, it's a, it's a you know it's a game that that needs significant attention from the from the top to the bottom I'm, I'm a big fan of what they've done with the WSL um, and I and I you know 100% support the idea that it's a you know fully inclusive and 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 opportunities for for, for girls and boys all levels uh, volunteers again totally agree you know they're the lifeblood of the game they, they make it happen week in week out um, digitizing them as as in their roles super important we, we started to do that around the whole game um, platform and this wherever the new platform looks like I'm sure it'll be an improvement Pit, pitches pitches are important I think you only have to walk around you know particularly in this sort of weather where it's got wet and muddy the local pitches near me are, are in terrible condition and the local authority the schools even haven't got a lot of money to support them it, it's, so it's about having the right pitches the right provision of pitches more artificial pitches more kind of long 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 wearing pitches to enable uh kids to be out playing the game coaches surprised me i agree i i, I think um it was one of the, the there is a there is a there's a solid piece in here on wembley and st george's park as the two key sort of physical assets that 
the FA spent a bunch of money on in 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 the uh, you know ten years or so ago. Um, but St George's Park was all around coaching, and there isn't a lot in here around coaching and. You know, it's an important objective for the FA to control that that agenda and get the right teachers in place, the right coaches in place at, at all levels of the game. And and I, I'm, I guess I'm a little surprised that's not not in there more. How does the Premier League and EPPP sort of play into all of this? I was talking to Nick Coward last week about this. What what's the the, the context of this coaching question? Yeah, I mean, it's a good when when I was. When I was at the FA, uh, I, I think it was probably 2010-11 that the the EPPP, the Academy Restructure, first first came to to the fore, and I was um, four square alongside Richard Scudamore at the time in improving the standards at the at the academy right across the the 92. I I actually I you know I dare dare I say it. I don't think you can have a professional academy system that spans hundred odd clubs. And I have a lot of time actually for some of the braver clubs out there like Brentford who decided to look at that structure and go, okay, there, there are four categories, but actually there's, there's mileage to be had in looking at category four and the late developing academy. And I think there's more, more clubs have followed that model since um, rather than developing for development's sake and spending money on, on development for development's sake. Rich and I had a very clear division of responsibilities. The, 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 the clubs develop the players. The FA develops the coaches that support the players. And then the FA runs the England team. So if you think about it as a sort of an integrated development cycle, our, our commitment at the FA was to make sure that the provision around England, you know, be it medical, be it physical, be it sports science, was at least as good as the Category 1 clubs so that the clubs could then trust that when the players came on international duty, they were being properly looked after. It was about improving our, our, our scouting and a whole bunch of other things. But so, so coaching FA, England FA, player development per se from, from, you know, nine, 10 years old through to first team, Premier League and Football League clubs. It was quite a, a clear and, and sort of understood and comfortable division of duty. And the P sat, in, in the middle of that, um, and it, you know, all too often it came a, became a little bit of a discussion about where the money was flowing, and it's, you know, it's, it's very hard as a football league club looking at the priority the prioritizations of of income, first team versus academy and future development and so on and so on. I, I and I can only imagine how much that um, pressure's escalated with with the loss of gate receipts over the last. 10 months and, and, and looking forward. So um, the EPPP often became a, a sort of a debate around funding. Um, and again, that got, that got promoted through the, uh, uh, through parliament, didn't it? Um, again, as a, as a, as a debate. So I've, I've diverted off the original question there, Richard. That's a completely separate question. Do you think they, they should have sold Wembley Stadium when they had the chance? So I arrived in 2004-2005 as Wembley was kind of coming out of the ground in the first three years of me being there as finance director and then MD of Wembley we were approached two or three times for people to buy the stadium my view at the time was it, it wasn't right we didn't know what we had as an asset it was a an, an a 
depreciating asset. It was an asset that was set to to throw off revenue from from attendance. Uh, and at least we had to we had to finish building it for a start, and then and then understand where it sat in the fabric of the game. Um, I think I am not completely familiar with the deal that was put forward, but having spoken to people who were familiar with the detail, I think it was a I think it was a good deal. I think actually, at ten years later or whatever it was, probably 15 years later, there was a moment to say, okay, you know, we, we, we aren't here to maintain the National Stadium. We can we can make do as... It wasn't a comfortable relationship as tenants of the old Wembley Stadium. Um, but as I understand it, you know, there was a, there was a deal to be had with a, with a sensible relationship that would allow the FA to focus on the, the objectives written large in this plan, minus having to maintain and and upgrade the you know the, the seats and the pitch and all the aspects of Wembley that, that come with running a running a large building. Um, so I think I think I probably would have pursued that deal if I was if I was in position, yeah. And and and, and hindsight's a wonderful thing. I mean if that deal had gone through ahead of March twenty twenty, it would have been a very different financial outlook for the for the FA. Again when you look at when you come back to the strategic plan, you've obviously got running through it. You've got an organisation which we've talked about. It's football. It's coaching. It's also a retail. It's also selling tickets. It's also booking Beyonce. And, you know, it's just, it's the stadium adds another dimension to it, which again, as you say, is a, is a, if it works, generate is a, is a revenue generation opportunity. And that's great for the game, but that does add a risk into the organisation, doesn't it? Yeah, and and there there will be a different department, and we had a we had a separate sort of quasi independent board structure with some support on there as well. So in my time, Melvin Ben, who's a you know first class event promoter, was chairman of the stadium. So you could buy in some of that expertise and build some of those relationships, and you know it 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 was a a must play venue. Um, times times changed though, and and you look at what Tottenham have built. And obviously, they've got the Olympic Stadium. Uh, there are, you know, there there, there are there are many fine venues around the UK, and and you know, you're competing as well with like the O2 Arena and the potential new arena at Stratford, uh, etc. etc. Et it's it's a, it's an ever evolving um, market, plus festivals and so on and so on. The UK is a it's a very hot sector for music for other for other events, but you know, Wem- Wembley. Wembley, when it was shiny, was getting its fair share. It's just increasingly competitive now. Let's just talk about the digital project. It's a it's a big play in here. I mean, they make a make, you know a, a, a large chunk of the thing. Talking, and I can I know the big theme of digital transformation. And and but just talk me through what the what's it trying to achieve? What does it need to do? And what are the limitations of, or what are the challenges going to be? I mean, the 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 the, the challenge initially when I was there was understanding what roles people had in football. So, you know, understanding your customers. So we did a, a detailed piece of analysis of people involved in, in the game, whether they were coaches or visitors to Club Wembley or referees or players or supporters, parents of kids, etc., etc. I think we had 15 
segments, if you like, that people could sit in. And obviously they could sit in multiple segments. And so we were then trying to produce content and create environments to talk to them in context. So if you're if you're running a grassroots club, what you know, what are your problems? And you know, there was a there was a criticism of, and I think it was real that the FA was sitting in an ivory tower at Wembley, it wasn't very close to how, you know what it took to run a a level seven grassroots club with feeder teams and youth teams and that sort of thing. And and increasingly there was uh, you, you know you'd see um, edicts and demands going out, but you know more and more and more admin coming out of the FA and less and less kind of support in terms of how to do it. You know, you must do this, 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 and this, and, and send us this, 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 and this in triplicate in order to play a, in our competition versus here's a really cool app that will help you, you know, book, book your teams, notify your players, collect the money for subs and so on and so on. And it, it really is those, those sort of basic functions and features that are sucking up you know, loads of time and sucking out the fun and enjoyment of the game from from those kind of those million or so volunteers who really kind of keep it all going. So, for me, it would be an extension of that. I know, I know that the insight team are still there, um, and uh, it will be about you know now they understand those roles, and it will be delivering tools to people to help them do their jobs effectively. And the challenges of that, in terms of, is it? Is it just that? Is it the tech adoption? Is it behaviour? Yeah, I mean it's adoption really because it's difficult to mandate that you must do it. You know, you must download this app. You must do this. Um, so it's it's persuasion. You know, this is and and it's 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 a little competitive now as well. There are quite a few people providing small tools in this space. Um, so and. You know, you can't you can't sit there and mandate the regulator because that's just not that's not right. So you have to do it as you know, this is this is well thought through and and it'll help you. Um, I imagine you could do it by, you know, integrating in, you know, we're asking you to do this in order to do this. You need, you know, whether it's referee appointment, for example, if there's a referee appointment aspect to it, then the more integrated the fabric is, the more people are likely to, to be involved. The other way to do it. And and this is you know this is this is quite common in tech is to is to be much more open, and to enable a platform that allows multiple different apps and feeds to to work within it, kind of open source. If that would be a brave thing to do, I I have no idea if that's in the plans. But you create some sort of open source environment actually, and and you know there's 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 data sharing there for everyone. Again, my my original view was that this wasn't around creating data. A sort of data pyramid solely owned by the FA, but it was about creating data pyramids for everyone, so that the the individual leagues, the individual county FAs, could all get access to the data that they needed around their, you know, their their players, their male male female players, the age of the players, and so on and so on. So there's a, you know, the the FA doesn't need the data for itself, but it it can kind of provide that data to the to the whole game, if that makes sense. You're, you're starting to. This is beginning to ring alarm bells for me because this feels a bit track and tracey. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking you could spend a lot of money on the on the on the tech, couldn't you? And then you, no, you really could. You really could. And I think you know before I joined in in twenty in two thousand five, I think they they had spent a bunch of money on a system that they threw in the bin. <laughs> we then we we then built a, 
a system and, and probably another system by the time I'd finished 11 years there. That whole game system is the one that is still alive and they're now replacing it again. So, yes, you could spend a lot of money on it. <laughs> right. Final final point. If we, if we sort of, this is a strategic plan, 2024, it takes us towards, but would you expect um, over that period of time that the the FA would be approached by sort of private money, private equity. We've seen, you know, that hovering around various sort of sporting assets. Would you expect that to be part of the conversation over the next period? Uh, I imagine they will be approached. I, um, I, as I say, we were, I was approached with private money vis-a-vis the stadium itself as an asset, there's an obvious, you know, potential relationship vis-a-vis the asset base, St. George's Park or Wembley. Um, there are obviously valuable rights and, that, you know, I, that you can see some of the deals that are being mooted in Southern Europe and, and so on and so on. I, I think, I think they've probably got, the balance about right in terms of broadcast rights partners and you know mitigating the risk by doing some 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 single deals and some big deals um i i i would be i would be surprised if it was a i'd be surprised if you could find an alignment of objectives for a private equity versus a governing body it's a, it's quite a different organization to say a a club or a league, different, different risk profile, different kind of, you know, different, different outlook. Um, Is that there'll be a lot of people looking at the sort of New Zealand All Blacks story, won't there? That that feels that feels like a different, exactly to your point. It feels different than just buying media rights or being a sort of quasi agency relationship that that was always the case anyway. Yeah, I think I think there's one there's one big difference though with respect to to New Zealand vis-a-vis England and 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 New Zealand rugby own and control the players and that is an investment in you know the, a, a perpetually excellent rugby team. The England players are assets in their own right and of the clubs that they play for. And thirdly, of England. So you can't buy England in the same way as you can buy New Zealand rugby. And England is only, as we've said at the top of this, you know, a portion of what the FA is there to do. So New Zealand rugby is laser focused um, and incredibly successful. And I can see how you could align uh, your line objectives with a private equity business there it's a lot harder with England where you don't really have the assets the players to control and so on and so on but there are bits presumably there are bits of the FA's sort of portfolio that private you know I, I use private equity in the broader sense but just yeah 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 external capital yeah completely for example I mean I use this probably too much but it feels like the sort of the women's super league for example is a property that could be accelerated in its development if it if it had private money. Is that would you agree, disagree? I think the Women's Super League is a really interesting example, Richard, because it's a it's 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 an evolving game, super exciting proposition. And if the question is by being held by the FA, it's effectively 
potentially limited it you know the fa's got a broad remit and they've got to prioritize where it invests its money everything from sort of refereeing to coaching right through to infrastructure and Wembley Stadium and, and women's football sits, you know, very clearly in the strategy, but they have referred to limited resources in, in light of COVID. So if it's a question of we can only afford to, to spend this much money on accelerating the WSL, then you may be right. That may well be, uh, that may well be an asset that you go, actually, if we could attract external investment into that, you could, you could align objectives quite clearly. Um, the one, the one thing I was always reticent about was, uh, sort of glibly handing it to either of the leagues. I think it doesn't sit alongside the two, you know, preeminent and successful male leagues that sit in the country. That would be a mistake. It will, it will get even less prioritization and care and attention in the hands of the Premier League or the Football League than it will do. The, the FA, the FA will protect it and, and run it properly. Um, I, I buy that. I think there is a logic in saying you could attract money in externally to accelerate its growth, and that that could be a good thing to do. Should we put a bid together? Yeah, let's get a spac, the horn spac. Surely, exactly. It's got to. It's got to happen. You know, the only person I've met who hasn't hasn't got a spac. So that's you know. It's a... <laughs> the other thing I was surprised wasn't in here, but I don't blame them necessarily is is uh bidding for hosting tournaments because the time frame for a decision on 2030 will you know be very close to the to the end of this period um maybe it's a little bit early still uh but i know it was when when greg clark was in in situ he made quite a play of understanding the the reaction of uefa to england bidding and beginning to understand the reaction of some of the other territories to England bidding. And it's, you know, it's obviously something that we didn't get right vis-a-vis the 2018 bid. And if we're going to go again, and there was a lot of talk about it. I haven't heard it mentioned for probably a year or so. There was a lot of talk about it. And also a, a sort of joint bid with, with the home nations. And, and you know, that's, that's completely silent in here. Okay, so that was Alex Horn, CEO and General Secretary and COO of the FA over a period nearly sort of nine years. Um, The next bit of the interview, or the second half of the podcast, is with Matt Rogan, co-founder of Two Circles, the agency, who have done a great deal of strategy work and a lot of the planning around the future of governing bodies. So I just wanted to talk, have a slightly different conversation, maybe a broader conversation, about the role of, of governing bodies, but also about the FA specifically, and what the strategic plan um, is there to to achieve. I want to talk about the the sort of strategic plan, obviously. But I just before we get into that, there is a you've written a few of these things, I imagine, or you've contributed to a few of these things. You like a strategy. You like talking about strategy. I'm it's a, it's a subject that's sort of endlessly interesting. What was your first impressions of the FAs? sort of strategic plan? So, so I guess um, there are probably three things. Um, firstly, it, it just never fails to surprise me. Um, 
just how broad the role of of an organization like the FA actually is you know how many because it's it's seven eight nine ten business models fused together so you know if you look at the participation remit and you say okay well they're responsible for for participation in the game in this country actually that means you're responsible for sort of facilities and investment in facilities that means you're responsible for coaching that means you're responsible for governance that means you're responsible for referees that means you're responsible for all that macro stuff in terms of keeping kids active gen z and this kind of stuff so, so that in itself is a, is a job and then you you kind of say okay well that's one piece of the jigsaw but also you've got a performance sport remit you've got um developing the you know obviously the the not just the the elite women's and men's teams and disability teams, but you also got the age groups. And then you've got uh, being an event owner, an operator and commercializer. And then you've got being a, you know, the, the owner of Wembley stadium and needing to put Bon Jovi and Eagles concerts and things in as well. So it's just a massive remit they have. So I guess that's, that's kind of number one. Number two, um, within the context of, as you say, a, a lot of, a lot of strategic documents inside and outside of sport I've sat across. Um, any document that um, is very focused and accountable to its to its audiences, I, I have a lot of time for. So rather than saying we're invested in pitches, saying the number of pitches we're investing in uh, and we want to develop by a, by a firm point in time, and the same with that disability code as well, rather than just saying we want to want to focus on those areas, being really clear on percentages of um, of different groups you want to interview and recruit it. They're very focused on, on hard accountable numbers and I applaud that. And I guess the third thing, um, the FA specifically, I've taken, football generally has taken a lot of flack through the, the COVID period. And I thought... Uh, in particular, around things like you know cancelling the um, cancelling the the women's Super League season, things like that, and I thought their commitment to growth areas like the women's game, like digital, like three G pitches, despite a three hundred million pound loss, was was very clear to me um, in a way that as a, somebody who a lot of time for football and play football as a as a kid and my way through my adult life, you know, I got a lot of time for so. Those three things, really, breadth of responsibilities, very accountable and, and, and also really good to see a continued commitment to growth areas despite a fairly seismic loss this year. Is it is a strategy the same as a series of goals? Because I was reading through the report thinking, OK, I, and I agree with you that, you know, the breadth of it was was is jaw-dropping, actually, at least to another question later on in terms of whether or not one organisation can actually manage all of that and and you know it's the right way of doing it but we put that to one side but the there is a list of ambitions um there isn't much in there in terms of how you go about reaching those ambitions so i'm just is that is that sitting somewhere else do you think that work is this just a public facing document or should there be something in terms of just giving an indication of well okay yes winning the world cup would be is a laudable ambition. No one would say that shouldn't be in there. The women's um, targets, the uh, pitches and all of that, that, you know, where they've been able to quantify something, they've quantified it, but there's nothing on the how and the, and the, the, it just felt like a list of, uh, like a wish list of things. 
Well, there's, there's two things underneath that. Um, the first one is if I know the quality of some of the people that exist in the FA, Mark Bullingham and well beyond, um, uh, CEO Mark Burrows, Sue Campbell, right, who, who was a major part of developing the performance management system for UK sport, absolutely underneath that there will be um, hard data evidence that's getting reported on um, month in and month out at internal management teams and internal leadership teams, which will cascade up a top line kind of board management team level to a series of statements and hard evidence behind saying whether they're on or off track. So James Kendall and the participation team will absolutely know how far um, he is alongside, uh, along the journey of getting to 5, 000, the 5,000 pitch target and he'll be tracking that week in and week out. James was, um, his Harlequins days, was was all over that hard evidence as a means to make decisions. So um, I, I guess underneath that, I would say, um, I, I have no internal knowledge at all, but I would be astonished if there wasn't heaps of levels of the how underneath. Um, I guess it, it comes down to how much you feel as a governing body. It's, it, anyone would A, be interested and B, how much you actually want to share anything at that next two or three levels down. Certainly from a participation perspective, the FA will absolutely have to report two or three levels down to Sport England and team, Tim and his team in terms of how they see themselves setting out to achieve the goals. And, and certainly that's necessary whenever you've got funding and, and things like that in front of you. So, um, you know, if you look at someone like Sainsbury's, when Justin King came into Sainsbury's, um, under the the strategy was make Sainsbury's great again. I was a bit involved in that in my, my former life in management consultancy. And, and there were six statements that were external facing and four or five levels of detail below that that went to a store by store level. And, and I would be astonished if the FA wasn't exactly the same in the way they're running this. Because as you say, it's an absolute beast of an organisation to get your head around. And I would argue probably the FA is the most complex um, of any of the, the governing bodies with the possible exception of the RFU because they're the only ones that um, have to go from participation to performance to event operation but also manage their own facilities. So DCB and the LTA at least have to worry about that um, in a way that, that the FA and the RFU do. Do you think the organisation is suited to that breadth and depth of objectives that it's laying out for itself? I mean, it's, um, well, firstly, I think because of its remit, it has to set objectives against each one of those, right? Because, you know, ultimately it's, its job is to, it is to sow what it reaps. So what it reaps commercially, it sows in terms of its investment in the, it, up and down the country in terms of facilities and grow the game as a non-profit. Um, so it has no option, but to have objectives, um, in all of those areas, I guess the question is, does it, is it, does it have the right talent to feel like they're likely to be able to get across those areas? And um, I'm not just saying this because we're talking about them today, but of all the leadership teams that I met in my time at Two Circles, I think that right now they're, they're all probably in the top three, maybe even the top in terms of the level of talent they have. Because, you know, whether you look in the performance side, you know, you've got Les Reed in there, um, you've got Kelly Simmons, you've got Sue Campbell, right? around the whole of performance sport for the whole of the country, as I say. Um, Mark Burroughs is a hugely capable COO, um, been in private equity and, and retail before his, his time in, in, in at Wembley. Their brand team is extremely good. Lewis, their marketing director is extremely talented. You know, they're, 
they're about as good as it gets in terms of the semblance of talent you have. And so if you say to me, do I feel like James Candle can get across their performance objectives, their, their participation objectives, I'd say yes. And so really it comes down to Mark Bulliam's ability to get the best out of that team and work out the independences between the goals. Um, so if we bring a commercial partner in in Weetabix, can that really um, drive female and young girl participation in football? And that requires getting participation and commercial to work together. And that's that's ultimately, that's Mark's job. It's quite odd because when you look at other, when you look at strategy, you know, definitions of strategy or whichever one you, you know, you choose to, to use, it's quite often sort of applying strength against weak others weakness your opponent's weakness or and there, there isn't an opponent that they're sort of fighting against there's no one would argue against any of the objectives that they've set out and you know, no one with you know that i think i i hope they all they achieve those and and more but there isn't any um tension there particularly i'm sure there is loads of tension in terms of government interference people the public and the media just peering into the what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. But what I'm getting at is competitive tension. There isn't any, you know, the, if you say Sainsbury's, they are going to go and, and do a sort of analysis of the other supermarkets and and target where, the, you know, their, their strength against their weakness and leverage that. That's what commercial strategy is. But that's not in here, is it? Well, there, I think there's two sorts of tension. So, so the first thing is, um, the best description of a strategy I ever heard was you only know you've got a strategy when you say no to things and when there are things you don't do as opposed to the things you do do. Um, so I found myself uh, getting harangued yesterday because I was positive about the launch of the strategy by um, somebody from the futsal community because one of the decisions that the FA made before Christmas was was that they weren't going to prioritise futsal. Um, they're kind of indoor version of, of, of football that's sort of six, seven aside. Um, and in particular, in the context of, of losing 300 million quid um, this year, which is their reported number, you know, there's a bunch of things that the FA are going to be not able to do. And so the, the, there's, a, there's one level of tension, which is, and, and frankly, you know, they were one of the best, I think, of the, of the governing bodies that, that went early with pretty material um redundancies but also pretty material internal pay cuts as well on the back of what they were going through so they don't have the resource they had to achieve what they had hoped to achieve and that that's a permanent tension because all they'll be getting from um the 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 county games rightly right now is is when are our leagues starting our facilities haven't had a mow for for six months because there's no money in local councils can we get some grants they're all waterlogged when are we going to start the season again and they don't have the people to handle some of those day-to-day challenges just like every governing body up and down the country so that's one source of competitive tension the second one i think is and it's something that i i think sport in in the uk at least hasn't done a particularly good job of over the last 20 years is is the tension isn't another sport the tension is can we get girls back um, to play the game if they'd signed up for a training course because they've 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 missed a year of of, of season of football and, and they might actually my daughter's now stuck on among us is what she's spending her evenings doing rather than going down to China football girls training so the tension is is every, all the other things that that people could be doing and have been doing over the last year because they've broken the habit um, in, in terms of the the commercial tension you know I heard your um, 
your interview with the fellow who runs um, Arsenal Fan TV, whose name I forget, he was talking about the fact that even sort of staunch season ticket holders actually have, have realised that other things happen in this country on a Saturday afternoon now, rather than going down to, to be a season ticket holder. So um, I, I think for football overall and sport overall, the tension isn't, uh, am I going to back to football or am I going back to rugby? It's am I going to football or am I going to top golf or am I actually just going to do something else with my Saturday afternoon now? Yeah, and that's, that, that was... Um... That was Robbie Lyle, who Arsenal fan to. You've got to bear in mind that he was talking about Arsenal. So it's, it, the choice of <laughs> the choice is, is you know, do I go back to watch Arsenal? That, you know, that's the that's the key element to that. Um, the governing bodies, just generally, because obviously FA is is one of the big dogs. How is the role evolving? Where has it got to go? What are the challenges? Generally, because this document is is, and I recommend everyone you know everyone reading through it. It's quite it's interesting. And it's interesting for, as you say, what it doesn't say as much as it as as actually what it lays out. But just the job of governing bodies in a world where people, are, you know, there is sport going on everywhere. I was talking to Nick Coward um, yesterday for for a podcast that's coming out, and we're talking about Park Run and its relationship to UK Athletics, you know, and, and innovation that happens outside of the role of the governing body. But the governing body will then try and take credit for that because it's a, a funding thing you know so there's there's people doing sports everywhere they're doing it in the wrong places i'm not knocking governing bodies but they feel like they're going through a period of well they are going to go through a period of change i just wonder what your view of that is given how much you work with them um they they will go through a period of change um and i think the first thing you'd say is is that ultimately if you look at uh, when a lot of them were set up a lot of them were set up in the industrial back end of the industrial revolution, right? So, and um, as a result of uh, their remit, which ultimately is um, to nurture and encourage a locally distributed sport up and down this this country of ours, um, we need to be realistic around the fact that um, our government spent quite a lot of money quite recently on all sorts of different things. Um, but we need to be realistic about the amount of governmental money that's going to be able to, coming in to support any area of the public sector in the short term. So um, somehow um, governing bodies, and even the name is a slight anachronism, you would argue, um, got to find a way to very efficiently nurture and support the engagement with, with their activity, recognising that, they're again, coming back to, to the way that... that um, that the FA operate, they're going to have to kind of reap whatever they can in terms of commercial income and, and ultimately drive some sustainability in terms of only spending what they generate to a larger or lesser extent. Um, and, and frankly, um, it, it's a little bit like, you know, the, the perennial media agency, creative agency squabble on who generated what revenue and, you know, I did that or I did that and or was it the programmatic agency? A little bit like governing body, I think... Yeah, the world we're operating in, whether it's British athletics, England athletics, or somebody else that generated the participation upswing from Parkrun, who cares? Like it's more people running, and I, I think what we're going to end up in is a world where the Sport England team are just going to have to be empowering of that, and and that's going to change the role of the governing body. I, I imagine a little bit. The the thing that I think is most important is um, governing bodies 
small, medium and large are going to have no um, option but to try and challenge the way in which they operate. For, for me, to, for them to be effective, um, they're going to need a great strategy. They're going to have to find, find ways to bring really, really good people in and they're going to have to have the ability to move at pace. And, and I think given a lot of the governances from the early 20th, mid 20th century, it's the move at pace thing is going to be really challenging. So if you look at, for example, um, all the, the fury around whether Wembley should have been sold for the FA to generate income to spend on 3G pitches up and down the country, um, you know, actually it was it was the council. So the, the, the local county FAs, my understanding that were the ones that, that kind of held that back at that point. And for me, um, governing bodies have to get a place, get to a place where um, those running the organisations can gather fan council, um, um, participant opinion, whatever it is, but ultimately they've got to be trusted to make smart calls and quickly because if, you know, you're going to get no councils, whether it's rugby, whether it's tennis, whether it's football, all the organisations that have local um, county organisations that have a, a place in decision making, no bold decision making gets made by groups of 90 people. You know, and, and so um, for me, the bit that, that really needs unlocking to help governing bodies change and evolve is, is their governance and their ability to make smarter, swifter decisions. Um, personally, I'd have, um, I think the FA did exactly the right thing in, in proposing the the Wembley sale, and um, I hope a deal like that ever comes around again because you sat looking at it today thinking, okay, we could have lost our role as the operator of a property, um, which really isn't core capability for ours, and instead generated 40 3G pitches in every county in this country. It's quite hard to justify that they need to keep talking to the Eagles and Bon Jovi promoters as part of their, part of their job. Yeah, yeah. You realise you're showing your age when you, uh, you when you you moved your your music references. The, the, you've used Eagles and Bon Jovi twice, which is like a sort of your your MTV days are now a distant in the distant past. You know what? It was, <laughs> isn't that the truth? You know what? Is um, my my legacy from MTV is running the search for Europe's best dancer ten years before Strictly, and it sunk like an absolute stone. And I think that was the end of my music career. <laughs> Just on your thread then of the, that sort of the next bit of the evolution of, of governing bodies. What about the FA's relationship with private equity or private finance? We need to get every time we in the sports industry talk about private equity, we need to just keep in mind that that, that means hundreds of different things, right, depending on, on the context. So it can mean stripping out a load of costs from an organisation, driving it hard, looking for efficiencies and selling it because you've done nothing other than uh, profit because you've done nothing other than take some cost out or it can mean um basically putting some some capital in up front to help um a sport a retailer whatever achieving in five years what it would otherwise take 25 years to do if it was competing for investment with 3g pitches um you know any, any other commercial objective and so um, the, la- the latter of those, I would say, um, whether we're talking about a new sports league for an existing property or um, developing a competing new sport 
or just looking at a different way to monetize digital infrastructure in a, in a sport. I think they're all opportunities for the right kind of growth capital. Um, but what I think is important in that is it's not necessarily uh, here's the keys to our league, off you pop, um, do whatever you want, and, and we hope to make a dividend. It's a, it's, you know, it's a partnership approach uh, for five years where it's probably a minority stake um and there's also access to all the best practice and and knowledge that comes from partnering up with a pe firm but you're you're not signing around away the crown jewels you know and that's no different frankly to the way that um a lot of rights holders have worked with um other types of sports agencies for the last 30 years you know the sports industry has been been built on that kind of a model where there's some upfront capital to help you do things quickly and more efficiently um so I, I think it's entirely possible. I think um, rights holders of all types are going to have to think differently about the way they, they manage their balance sheets because, because the P&L is pretty lively right now. That doesn't mean you've got to give away things for nothing or be taken advantage of, though. The best thing the FA in particular have, in there, have behind them is, is a fantastic COO, CFO, who's been in that world and knows it inside out. So... Um, the, the thing that's the biggest threat to the sports industry in terms of any external investment is just a lack of expertise. Okay, the, there is within another strand of this, and this is, we'll finish off on this. The, another strand of the the document is the digital question. They're making a big play of creating the football platform, as they're calling it, and moving it away from their existing platform, which sounds perfectly logical and for someone who's sort of got a a marginal sort of uh knowledge of digital i know that people tell me it's much more difficult than um it looks what is going to be the challenges do you think of of moving towards that is they're talking about you know making it as easy easy as ordering a pizza on your mobile this is going to be you know football in the with digital first what what's going to be the issues with that cost being one, presumably cost will be one, but, but ultimately the, the main one, I mean, we're talking about a, almost a half a billion pound organization here. So, so technology cost is, is part of part and parcel of it. The, the biggest change, um, you know, what it's probably best to think about what is this, what are the benefits this is going to unlock and therefore who is this going to touch? So, so the premise, my understanding, the premise behind this is, is to make it easier to, um, to administer sports teams. So rather than email out on a Friday night, say who's available for Sunday, it's a quick opt-in scheme online, which means you can also, I imagine they'll be looking at ways you can pay subs online. They'll be looking for ways you can manage suspensions and things online that um, players can then log in and get their stats. And that means you start to have a direct relationship with players rather than being um, somebody, uh, you know, a team list that's written on the back of the fag packet, the assistant manager on a on a Friday night in the pub. So, um, in an ideal world, it makes it easier for administrators, makes it easier for leagues, and also it just makes it a better experience for for players. You know, I've played one season of um, of vets football in the digital era, um, which is sad. It's a bit of a sad story because I couldn't hit a cow's ass with a banjo and was playing an attacking midfield. So the only stats I've got on my career show me having played about 25 games and scoring one goal. But I wish I had the the other years of, of football that I played. But if you think about there, the benefits. So what, what are the problems then? Well, you've got to persuade your assistant manager, who's quite likes um, kind of filling it in on a, on a fag packet 
um, picking his team and then calling three ringers who aren't registered to, to, that, that this digital journey is worthwhile for him, which means you've got to persuade every single club up and down the country that it's worth it. And then that means the biggest challenge is you've got to test it and roll it out in such a way that that, that there's never a point of failure. There's never a point of a, of a kind of test and trace, track and trace to use a um, very topical British analogy at the moment. Never a point where it doesn't work. There's never a point where word gets around that it's just not worth it. Um, and so the, the biggest challenge with with any system is never that the technology doesn't work really in the possible exception of track and trace it's um it's actually just that people don't like change <laughs> and it's 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 your woman or your man in the pub on a friday night with their team um trying to pick it when a couple of people have dropped out last minute that's where the change needs to stick which means it's just got to be bloody good basically mm. it's people isn't it people are the problem get rid of them and the whole thing's easy <laughs> well yeah, you don't get great goals without the people. Well, listen, thanks, Matt. I really enjoyed that. That was uh, everything I expected it to you. You, you look. Um, I might take a photo of you actually because you look. Um, uh, and, and, uh, this is this is this will be added value content. I'll uh, I'll put on the. Uh, hang on. This is this is um, unofficial partner plus. Is it? It is. This is the yeah, <laughs> exactly that. Up plus. You look like you're a sort. Of, you're in an open prison. Or you look like one of those sort of um, Chilean miners that were stuck down underground for about sort of, six months. <laughs> Tell you what, lockdown education, it feels like that. <laughs> right, brilliant. My there you go.